Welcome to another installment of the podcast on church, state, and faithful citizenship. Patrick Brown here, serving as your host. Our guest for today's episode of Crown and Crozier is Archbishop Michael Miller of Vancouver, Canada. In our conversation with His Grace, we chat about his recent and ongoing experience engaging with government on some of the most consequential issues of our day. These include the restrictions on worship and religious services that were imposed during the COVID pandemic, as well as some of the moral and ethical considerations related to the COVID vaccines. We also talk about some issues unique to the specific circumstances of Archbishop Miller's diocese. These include wrestling with the legacy of residential schools in Canada, as well as some of the unique models of collaboration between the church and the government as it relates to education. Some quick background on our guest, Archbishop Miller has served as the shepherd of the flock in Vancouver since 2009. He has held several exceptional roles in the field of Catholic education, including secretary for the Vatican's Congregation of Catholic Education and a six-year term as president of the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas. Just a very quick heads up, in the very short time since we recorded this interview, an announcement has been made about an impending papal visit to Canada. While we didn't have the opportunity to chat about that recent development, we're confident you'll nevertheless enjoy this enriching and lively dialogue about life on the Episcopal front lines. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. There are two swords, and the question is which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die His Majesty's good servant, at God's first. We are truly humbled and grateful to have the privilege of speaking with our guest for this episode, Archbishop Michael Miller of Vancouver, Canada. Your Grace, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be with you, Patrick. We're chatting at a time when so much of our day-to-day lives, including our life as a church, remains affected in varying degrees uh, by the COVID-19 pandemic. We're now well over a year and a half into this pandemic. The accumulated public health, social, economic impacts have been overwhelming. I want to start with a general question. Sure. Where's your head at, given everything that's transpired over the last year and a half? Well, I guess I'm, I'm a little tired of being in pandemic mode. Uh, on the other hand, here in Vancouver and in British Columbia, things have at least a, a general appearance of you know, what's called the new normality, the new norm. Our schools are, are are fully in session, as they were really throughout the pandemic last year. Last year, there were more restrictions, you know, more care about social distancing, and they, mm-hmm. we had a cohort system. That's no longer even, even true. There are passports to get into restaurants and gyms and movie theaters and so on, but certainly not for not for churches. Does, is not required here at the pastoral center. Everybody pretty much is, everybody is back working, but it has revealed that some people for a few days a week, even in sort of not for non-pandemic reasons, can work and do work better from home. But it's, I would say on a given day, we're 90% mm-hmm. here at the pastoral center, which I imagine is the, is the situation in most of our, of our parishes. We've been through a lot. Everybody's been through a lot. Absolutely. Um, we, and there are certain, you know, our churches now are fully open. They're not, when you ask the priests how, what the percentage, most of them seem to say about 80% to pre-COVID times. But that's a, a, a big blessing, you know, to be able to have as many people attend as want to. There's still some people who are hesitant, particularly people who are, you know, are in some ways more vulnerable. As the leader of one of the largest archdioceses in Canada, you've had to navigate some challenges that have been common uh, with your brother bishops, but also some challenges that have been unique to your specific circumstances. You did seem to have a bit of a unique place in the fraternity of bishops in Canada in terms of well, speaking up to the public authorities at certain points over the course of the pandemic, particularly in relation to the different restrictions that were put on, uh, yes. put in place in respect to uh, worship and religious services. I just want to kind of ask the general question. I mean, obviously, in the, the early months of the pandemic, so much confusion, so much uncertainty. Yeah, there was a lot of confusion and people weren't sure what was going on, exactly. even the public health authorities. Yeah, but, but then uh, as the months transpired and 
more data was gathered, more experience was accumulated. I mean, it did reach a point, I believe, towards the end of 2020, where uh, there were some restrictions that were being reintroduced. And and it seemed like in your neck of the woods, uh, you were sticking your head up and saying, you know, there's some restrictions that are being reintroduced for houses of worship, and they don't really seem to be justified. And I'm just curious to to get your general sense to start with. At at what point did you say, okay, in this respect, we got a bit of a problem, and I got to say something here. Yeah, I think it was. We have a um, a guild or an association of Catholic lawyers called the St. Thomas More Guild, sure. which was re- resurrected about 10 or 12 years ago. Certainly with their great cooperation and help and legal advice that they could bring to the Attorney General, what we didn't object to the need for certain restrictions. What we objected to was that we were treated more harshly than restaurants. Mm-hmm. And what we asked, what we were asking for, and a lot, a lot of this was back channeling, that we be treated uh, at least in the same way if restaurants can open with certain capacity and so on, observing necessary protocols, which we were certainly willing to do, then we should be. That, that worship is not more dangerous for, from public health standard than places of worship. I understand the public health authorities' position. They have to deal equally with all religions. And in some religious traditions, which are pretty, which are fairly strong in British Columbia, uh, sharing meals together and so on is a more integral part of their worship than it is certainly is for Catholics. We do our eating and donutting after mass and after service. I guess quite rightfully, they, they didn't want to begin to distinguish between Christians and particularly Catholic liturgy and other uh, religious gatherings. But we were able to, I think, establish that our places of worship, Catholic places of worship, were certainly just as safe as as other places. Our attorneys were very helpful. Uh, we never had to actually bring it to court, but knowing, you know, working with the government and the ministry, we were able to I think, put a certain amount of pressure, which the health authorities accepted. And in fact, when we had a, a much larger reopening in this earlier in the summer, it was allowed first for uh, for religious organizations. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it worked out well enough at the end. But there, there was, as you mentioned, there was at the beginning, there was some, there was confusion. And although we didn't use the language of essential and non-essential, that was kind of behind, that was behind it. I just want to go back to your comment about the prospects of going to court. It did seem like you had a bit of a distinct status, as it were, and being one of the only bishops in Canada who, I think, publicly out loud, talked about the prospect of taking the authorities to court. I mean, I, my understanding was there was, you know, some some motion or some some notice given to the, the BC Supreme yes. Court. And I, yes, I'm just curious, in, in terms of that action or the prospect of that action, you as a bishop, an archbishop, have so many responsibilities what was your state of mind? Did you find yourself, was your heart skipping a beat? Was your heart beating faster? I mean, what did that just mean for you in terms of your role? It was somewhat daunting, but I had full confidence in the attorneys of the Thomas More Guild mm-hmm. that they were, I mean, they would check, they were on, they were on the right track. Nobody wanted to unnecessarily embarrass the, either the government or the public health authorities. They, they were always, in a sense, respectful of, of what they were doing, trying to read, you know, understanding the reason why they were doing things. And, and really just pointing out, this just doesn't quite, this isn't really fair if you take the time to examine it. To be honest, I think that the public health authorities, with so many things on their mind, hadn't thought through the question. And I think this helped them in a way to, to do so. And they did respond in the end, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, I wasn't overly fearful. Um, I had full confidence in the, in the men and women who were, in a sense, leading the charge. I don't know the ins and outs of the circumstances in British Columbia. I mean, here in the, the province of Ontario, in the very early days, in the, the early months of the pandemic, I mean, there w- actually was a provincial regulation adopted, which identified the essential services and separated the wheat from the chaff, if you will, in terms of what was deemed to be essential and what was deemed to be non-essential. And religious services didn't make the cut. They didn't make the list. And yeah, I think we, we didn't use that vocabulary here. There were certainly separate health orders for uh, places of worship and so on, but it, we weren't really qualified ever, you know, publicly that you mm-hmm. are non-essential. I think they were very wise to avoid that. You know, they, they put the categories, but they didn't list that this is, these sure. are the, the good guys and these are the bad guys. 
and that's that's a credit to your jurisdiction. And unfortunately, that just simply wasn't the case in other jurisdictions, whether Canadian provinces or U.S. states. Recognizing the specific context of a pandemic, but also looking at the bigger picture, what do you think are potential implications when civil authorities are designating long-standing religious traditions and religious yeah. services as non-essential to the social fabric. Yeah, no, I, I I, think to start calling religious services non-essential, I mean, of course, it butts up against the, the charter, and that's one of the, one of the points that would be, uh, I think, clear, clearly made. It's also true that, you know, British Columbia has a, you know, maybe a, a somewhat different relationship between it, faith groups, churches, and, and, and civil authorities. For example, our school system is not like uh, uh, Ontario's, where, where it's a Catholic school system and a public school. We have an independent school system of which the Catholics are at least half of the uh, independent schools, but it's not just a Catholic thing. And we don't get full support. We get half of our operational support. We still have a pretty strong Catholic healthcare network here, Providence Healthcare, which is one of the largest in the country. And we have a de- we have an agreement, it's called the Denominational Health Agreement, with the government, which respects our right to operate our, our healthcare facilities according to the um, healthcare ethics guide of, of the Canadian uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops. We're now in the process of building a, a, a huge new hospital, you know, and the land of the previous hospital, which is owned by a Catholic society, is giving that land for the for the construction of a, of a new hospital. So that the province saves an enormous amount of money that it doesn't have to pay full on. The same with our schools; we build our schools totally. And so there's um, it might be a, a pragmatic arrangement, but that's okay. That you kind of leave religions a bit alone. The other thing is they were never a threat, really, to... Uh, they never dominated the public form. BC, for over 100 years, has probably been the least religious province in Canada, mm. and it still is. And so it doesn't have an anti-clerical tradition. It has more tradition of, to be honest, maybe indifference. It's like Washington State and, and, and Oregon in the, in the United States. The Pacific Northwest has always been within their own tradition and confines, uh, religious groups to, uh, to flourish on their own because they never threatened, they never dominated the public life so they don't have to be fought against. When you yeah. cast an eye across the rest of North America and, and some places in Europe, for example, where admittedly over the last 18 months, there's been more, I'll choose my words carefully, I don't know if antagonism, but maybe serious misunderstandings between civil authorities and, and churches. I mean, I think of different lawsuits in the United States that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And, and again, here in Ontario and in other Canadian provinces, there's been going back to that, are you essential people of faith, yeah. uh, that kind of fundamental question. What do you see as potential lessons from the pandemic? Or um, is there ground we have to reclaim or recover in terms of communicating to the civil authorities and impressing upon them the fundamental role and place of religion in our society uh, do, do we do we have some work to do there I think I think we do Patrick I think you, you're right we do have some some work to remind authorities that we have a role to pl- a role to play that we're not interested in sort of overwhelming uh, the public square certainly of course we couldn't even if we wanted to and that there are that the church or churches and here it really is interfaith because there's a, there's a very large Sikh population here, a Muslim population and so on. It's a multi it's a multi faith environment in, in British Columbia. But we do have to keep reminding authorities that we have that we have an important role to play, even from their point of view, in the deliverance of certain public goods and services. Sure. And that the uh, the charter guarantees our right not just to worship but to um, engage in public life and in public institutions. I think if we try to, I feel sorry a bit in Ontario, where you cannot argue, for example, on the schools question, that what we are doing is allowing parents' rights to pervade because other other traditions can't run their schools 
on their own, that there it's a constitutional guaranteed by the British North America Act. We're not hampered in that way. And I think that that means that there's a, there's a setup in Ontario which is quite different from that in British Columbia. And I'm actually very happy. I, at one time I used to think, wouldn't it be great if we had fully funded Catholic schools? And the answer to that to me is clearly no. Well, that, that's an interesting comment. Feel free to let me know if I'm, if I'm overstepping here, but just maybe okay. a little bit of a friendly fire for you. I mean, I, okay. I've, sc- I've scoured the website for the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops and, and other resources, and I, I can't seem to locate, or ha- I haven't located any joint statement on the part of the, the Bishops' Conference at any time over the last you know, 20 months where there, there was a, a unified voice on the part of the, the bishops in Canada to public authorities, to the decision makers and the policy makers responding to some of these designations around essential versus non-essential. I can't help but observe it. It seems like given all of the, the joint statements that the bishops make and the collective engagement that the, that body does, was, was there not a place over the course of the last 18 months or was there not a place going forward for the bishops to say, whoa, 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 you know, you guys, decision makers, we know these were extraordinary times and circumstances, but you got to bear in mind that the religious traditions and practices of this country, of, of any free society. I mean, these predate the, the Confederation of right. Canada. These predate the formation of the modern nation state. You know, there's there's got to be some respect, yeah, but, sh- but, respect shown but, here. Is that, what, what's your thought well, on that? Well, I, I guess my response to that would be that because health and health orders and health restrictions are under provincial jurisdiction, mm-hmm. that it's, there isn't, fortunately, I'm glad in Canada that we don't have totally centralized um, health care and health orders. And therefore, I think it was it was appropriate for bishops, each in their own locale, to deal with the authorities in place. Not not everyone was as, frankly, every health authority was as, as good and, frankly, at the end of the day, as effective as, as British Columbia. And so to get embroiled in trying to craft statements that would work equally well for, right now, to use the example of the Maritimes or, or Quebec and British Columbia, I think would would lead to something that is probably fairly anodyne. And I would think that this is, frank, a, a place where you deal with your with the with jurisdiction that is uh, immediate to your own uh, diocese. Sure. And so I, you know, I mean, general principles are general principles in in, in the catechism. We don't have to repeat those. Mm-hmm. But when you get down into concrete relationships, mm, it's the provincial ones in health that count. Just rounding out this 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 segment, I, I will say, rest assured that your engagement with your civil authorities in, in British Columbia. I mean, it caught the attention of a lot of people in Canada, and we were very grateful for that, that witness, that display on your part in terms of, of communicating that message around the need to keep houses of worship open. Yeah, we also had, you know, a, a public health authority that was able, that responded, mm-hmm. which I'm not sure would be the case in every other jurisdiction. Right. I don't know, but I, I, I know that we did have that, so it, it worked. Yeah, something to be thankful for. It is. So just sticking with that, uh, that theme of the, the bishops speaking jointly, the bishops have spoken jointly on another major yes. topic, <laughs> topic related to the, to, the, to the pandemic, and that's the, the vaccines and the availability of the vaccines. And the, the Canadian bishops earlier this year issued a joint statement, among other things, saying that it was morally permissible and it was encouraged for the faithful to receive the vaccines. Can you speak just to the, the impetus for that joint statement and, and perhaps just even more fundamentally what faithful Catholics should know and take to heart in relation to the vaccine. Sure. I think that was, that was a, a, an easier because it was, it, it was, it was a very general and uh, the position of the Holy See and the Holy Father was, was, was very clear. And so for us, in a sense, to echo those sentiments was, I don't want to use exactly the phrase a no-brainer, but it it, it didn't involve uh, a lot of dispute because it was a very general thing that uh, that there were no moral objections, which is different from saying that you, that you must. Uh, but there was an encouragement to follow the the advice of most pu- of the public health authorities, although not everyone in the medical field. But certainly, mm-hmm. one would say that uh, the good of vaccinations is by far the majority. Uh, opinion among uh, health professionals. It's not exclusive. It's not unanimous. I understand that, but it certainly sure. is sure. the majority. And, 
And would you say uh, that joint statement by the bishops perhaps was a good indication of the church acknowledging its limits or the limitations on its voice and its competence in terms of acknowledging yeah. uh, the competence of, of health authorities and medical experts? Um, would you say that was a, a good exercise in that sense? I guess, I, you know, it, it really wasn't a matter of a huge amount of discussion because it seemed to mm-hmm. be uh, where there was huge consensus and it, and it wasn't dictated in any way by um, either provincial concerns or, yeah, by provincial concerns. So that, was, that wasn't, a, that wasn't, we've labored over other documents, that wasn't a, that, that, was, that wasn't one to be labored over. There's lots of laboring going on in, in relation to the one of the major issues of the day, which is policies related to mandatory vaccinations. Right. For particularly in the workplace, major announcement from the government of Canada yesterday in relation to federal civil servants. We've seen similar announcements south of the border. I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on the, the question of mandating a medical procedure, or in this case, this this specific medical procedure, because I don't think it's any secret that different voices within the church, whether clergy or laity, are saying very different things they are saying on, very on this different topic. Things. Yes, and I'm, I, that's why I'm not sure that there is an absolutely clear-cut answer. I, I, I think people certainly have, individually, have a right not, not, to, be, not to be vaccinated. The extent to which they're, they're therefore, that they suffer certain consequences that are imposed by outside authorities is another is another question. I, I no one no one that I know has ever supported that people should be forced literally to be vaccinated. That 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 no one has a right. No 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 outside authority. On the other hand, to perfect to protect the common good, and that's always as seen by a certain group. It might be that if people make certain choices, that they that they are thereby denied access to certain certain places or or services. That can be certainly argued about. I think that there are certain groups of people that are in very constant and close contact with the public that they should, it, it's responsible for them and, uh, and for the public that they should be vaccinated. Should be, you know. I mean, there might be, uh, they, people can't claim, certainly Catholics can't claim religious exemptions. They can claim right of their own conscience, but they can't claim that because they are Catholics that they, are exempt. That's that's simply not true. Because I know the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith has issued a statement where it says, generally, for general purposes, vaccinations should be voluntary. Yes, for general, generally they are. They should be. They should. They probably should be because, in other words, they shouldn't be forced. But but if they're put in a situation where the prospect of, of well, then of they have mandate- to. It's, it's just like anything. You have to to decide between which good you want to pursue. If you want to pursue the good of, of protecting your own health, then, then you have to be willing to accept the consequences. That's always the case in, in conscientious objection. You don't get a, there are consequences to be borne. I mean, what about uh, some of the more sensitive and, and contentious conversations in relation to the prospect of, uh, of having to have received a vaccination, let's say, to attend Mass? Um, I, I think that's different. I think access to public worship is, is, is something where, where I don't think that we should... Um, that we should ask for that. I don't think that that's that 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 that's a body that, for our concern for the public good, includes for their spiritual good, which is different from, say, somebody working in a healthcare institution. And so, I don't think that the church should demand that. On the other hand, I think for people who are unvaccinated, that they should be careful enough to observe perhaps protocols that other people don't have to do. And certainly, I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable position. I mean, we have seen we have seen some discussion in some dioceses in Canada on on this question, and, and in other countries as well. When it relates to a specific matter like this, do you think there's a risk from whether certainly from the inside of, of the church, the, right. the faith, the faithful, the flock themselves, but also from the outside, just the perception of well, you know, I the, think the from Catholic the outside, vo- the Catholic voice and the Catholic view on this issue. I mean, are are we undermining our credibility? Or I, I or? think I th- I think that one of the things that is that is not not well understood is that in many areas where there is where it is not there is not you know clear teaching. We're not talking about the mystery of the Trinity, the incarnation. That there are applications that are proper to bishops in their own in their own jurisdiction. People tend to see the Catholic Church as as extraordinarily sort of a a vast and, and kind of single entity, but that's 
That's not true. The Catholic Church, you know, is 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 made up of local churches which are joined to joined to the successor of Peter, and we don't have a national church, for example, as much as people would like to, and they're used to that, looking at, at the Anglican Church of Canada, the United Church of Canada. There is not a Catholic Church of Canada. There are dioceses, which are each full expressions of the Catholic Church in union with, with the Bishop of Rome, and they're, therefore with one another. And I think we've probably overstressed the notion uh, and confused that certainly on dogmatic things, which make us a true local church, there has to be agreement. But there are many questions on which they are not, where, there, where, where the decisions are prudential and different jurisdictions could arrive at different decisions. And I think sort of the application of a, of a, of a vaccination mandate, it seems to me, would fall into, into that category, which is, unlo- which is not like teaching on, on the Eucharist. Stepping back, I don't think it requires a prolonged exposure to public discourse at this current time to make the observation that there's a lot of division and divisiveness over this topic. There is, yes. And that's both within the world, quote unquote, the world, and also within the church. Right. What are your thoughts on how we apply basic Catholic teaching to this moment and to ensuring that there's unity and solidarity preserved and we're not, uh, we're not driving wedges between different segments of society, including within our own fold? Well, there's no doubt that there is a sense of antagonism that exists in society, is propagated in certain, certainly by, by the media, where divisiveness is something that they foster. And in basic questions, of course, there has to be unity. But as I say, on the prudential ones, I, I think that we have to start to understand and to accept and to appreciate that people or dioceses particular can arrive given their own local situations at at different situations. What is unfortunate, I think, is for people to think that this is, that they attack one another, or that they think that that these questions are somehow dogmatic questions, or they raise them to a higher level than they they deserve. I mean, we can't tolerate, really, in the long run, how you deal with it, serious differences in doctrinal teaching, that for sure. But where it's a matter of, of prudential judgment and the application of something that is not like, like a, a vaccine mandate, I think we should accept that there are going to be differences and that we don't cast others into into the darkness because they don't agree with us. And there's, a, there's I think, unfortunately, a, a readiness of people to, um, and this isn't just in the church, it's everywhere, that someone who doesn't agree with me is an enemy. And that's poisonous. That's, that is, I think, radically opposed to one living a Christian life. Uh, to hold that in your heart, uh, that other people are, are enemies, that you are free to attack them, and, and so on. I just don't, I, I don't think that that is at all healthy for an individual's life and the, ter- the internal t- turmoil that it takes on them and what should be the, the interior peace that should characterize a person who's living in a relationship with Jesus Christ and, of course, is, uh, I think, unhealthy for a wider communities. We could use a dose of charity. Yes, absolutely. It does seem there there are dimensions to this debate and this topic that run a risk of potentially determining someone's ability to participate in the fullness of social life by this one factor or this one decision. And, and that just seems like a, a dangerous road, a dangerous path to embark down, particularly for those who, uh, who are aspiring to, to follow the example and follow the words of the gospel. Right. You've also occupied... Another very unique vantage point in a different major issue of the day, particularly here yeah. in Canada, and that is the issue of, of residential schools. Well, that's a very sad, that's a sad issue, yes. Yeah, and, and you've been on the front lines of that for, for quite some time. Interested to hear your thoughts on some of the, the, the issues at play uh, with, with the residential schools, for, just for the benefit of some of our, our non-Canadian listeners. Uh, right. We're just going to give a, a quick overview. Okay, do that, Patrick. That's, that's always helpful. The residential schools were established in Canada under a federal government program, which ostensibly uh, sought to assimilate Indigenous children into Euro-Canadian culture, to equip them with education and skills for participation in economic and social life of the new country of Canada, and to evangelize them into the, into the Christian faith. Uh, there were about 130 residential schools which operated in different Canadian provinces between the 1870s and the 1990s. 
the last one closing in 1996. Of those residential schools, there were half a dozen in your archdiocese. Yeah, in what was the archdiocese, for example, everyone now knows the the, the story of the of, of Kamloops, which was in the archdiocese until the the diocese of Kamloops was formed at the end right. of 1945-46. So we kind of assume responsibility for right. the oversight when the Indian Residential School was first established and under our jurisdiction for about 50 years. So many of these schools, not all of them, but many of them were located in remote areas and were staffed by Christian missionaries and religious orders. About 60% of the schools were run by Catholic orders and communities. Approximately 150,000 Indigenous children attended residential schools during 100-odd years when they were in operation, well, with the majority, not all, but the majority of those children forcibly removed from their homes by the government. Of these 150,000 children, it's estimated that around 4,000 to 6,000 died while attending school, uh, in most cases as a result of outbreaks of diseases like tuberculosis or as, as a result of malnourishment. Uh, the exact numbers of the deceased, unfortunately, are unknown due to incomplete records. And in addition to the loss of life, one of the biggest scars and the stains of this legacy of residential schools was the suppression of cultures and languages of the Indigenous students. Now, the settlement of numerous cases of litigation that were brought forward by survivors of the school system in the year 2006 led the Government of Canada to formally apologize for the residential school system in the year 2008. It also led to the establishment of an independent truth and Reconciliation Commission, which released a report in 2015. And this report offered a total of 94 different calls to action to redress the legacy of residential schools. Just kind of a, a simple question right off the bat. I mean, not a simple question, but a, a okay. straightforward question. Yeah. How do we make sense of the Catholic Church's involvement in this program uh, to, be, to begin with? I think we can make sense, make sense of it, I mean, without kind of excusing certain things is that the, the government of, of Canada asked, because they it asked religious communities, and we'll just deal with Catholics, but it, it, it certainly dealt with other other communities, if they would be willing to, uh, to staff these schools. Catholics at the time saw this as a way to help what they certainly regarded, whether, you know, there's certainly some to use the new term colonialist or or paternal thing, but that this would be a way to help people that they regarded as in some ways unfortunate and who needed education and care so that they could be assimilated because the notion was that everyone should be assimilated. They regarded the indigenous population the same way as as other groups who came to Canada. We know that that's not exactly true because there's a First Nation status of people being here beforehand, but I think at the time. And religious communities of sisters and of men, many more of sisters, agreed to take on the running of the school. They were totally dependent upon, of course, the resources that were made available to them by the federal government, which were Mm. often extraordinarily skimpy. And there's a lot of correspondence to show that they were they were asking for more that they let the government know of the situations the children who came to the school were and this is very tragic were often forcibly removed actually from their homes right. not all were and people will say that the the those who ran the schools were not involved in that that was those were government actions and they sort of put the children in the school aside from that it was the government that controlled but it was to be honest, I think most Canadians accepted this, that the, that the children should be, in a sense, they should learn English and therefore uh, could not speak their, uh, their own Indigenous language and had to sort of to dress, you know, in the way that uh, other Canadians did. And there's a lot of looking back now, we, we realize that that policy, which the Catholic Church helped to implement, was um, now we can say I think mistaken. That was a tragic error. And and, and in that regard, I'll, I'll admit something I've reflected a lot on. In the Catholic faith, we have this wonderful tradition of larger than life saints. Right. Jean de Bre- Jean de Brebeuf, Isaac Joe, Francis Xavier, Unipero Serra, Bartolome right. de las Casas. This wonderful legacy of service to indigenous peoples. I think of the Jesuits here in North America their ethos of integrating themselves into the lives of indigenous communities, uh, respecting their, uh, their languages, learning their languages. On the one hand, you have this, this beautiful tradition and foundation from the Catholic faith, and it, it seems like that 
didn't make its way in or kind of infuse itself into the experience with residential schools. Is that a fair statement? I think that's, that, that's, that's a good statement, that not everything could be, was sort of running on the same same plane, because we also know that it was certainly here in British Columbia, it was, it was the oblate missionaries who preserved uh, the languages, who did, the, you know, wrote, the, did the first dictionaries. So they were running in parallel. And, and also to remember that the residential schools, we know, were not totally populated. Eventually, they, a lot of the teachers and staff were themselves Indigenous mm-hmm. and, and non-Catholic. It wasn't as if, I mean, they, the sisters or the priests, or, uh, you know, they, in a sense, administered and ran the school, but they were by no means the only contact that the children had. And government policy, which was was really a policy of the best thing is to assimilate. There's an unfortunate statement of Sir John A. Macdonald about taking taking the Indian out of the of the children, but that's that was was in some ways the the, the guiding principle and was mistaken. But you're also right. The, the The church also did see this as a as an opportunity to evangelize and provided many other services that the government didn't do in, in, in local communities. But it was part of the of the residential school system. Yeah. And there was, I think, you know, certainly cultural abuse, to use the term, and there was some other abuse as well, you know, in terms of uh, discipline and even some sexual abuse. Just going back to one of your previous comments around there actually being a bit of a practice of Indigenous students eventually becoming teachers at these institutions. Yes, they did. One of the one of the more beautiful stories has been the story of Rose Prince from the yes. diocese, the diocese of Prince, Prince George, George in, yes. in British Columbia, who was an Indigenous woman who was a student and then returned to her school or stayed at her school and became a teacher. She died at a young age from tuberculosis, and then miracles began to be associated right. with uh, her gravesite. And from what I understand now, there's actually an annual pilgrimage. There is. Many, many of the participants of whom are indigenous Christians yes. to her gravesite every year. And it just, it seems like it, stories and examples like that get lost in a lot of the, the broader debate and the noise. I think in the current climate in Canada, that those stories, when they're brought forward, are seen as trying to deny mm-hmm. the the horrors of residential school. It, it'll take some time. We should preserve those stories, but they're they're seen as now in in a public form if they're brought forward by people who are uh, Euro Canadians or non-Indigenous people. There seem to be ways of trying to excuse uh, the negative things, and 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 I think we we'll just have to wait before pushing that in the in the larger picture. We'll have a fuller and I think a more authentic. But right now, in light of the dis- of the discovery, it wasn't really a discovery. People knew, but of the uh, of the flare up in that came out of particularly in British Columbia out of, out of Kamloops, we just have to, I think, in a sense, kind of take the negative dimensions and then wait and put them in hope you know time will be we'll be able to put them into a i think a larger context because they're not heard now they won't be heard you know it also it also strikes me as relevant in the context of the discussions around of healing healing mm-hmm. for the survivors for their descendants Again, I, I don't want to cross any lines or anything, but I, I read the recent apology, the, the, the apology from the Canadian Conference bishops, of Catholic Bishops yeah. uh, a, a week or two ago, uh, formally and unequivocally apologizing as, right. as a body of bishops for the legacy of the residential schools. Very thoughtful, very well, well-crafted apology. One thing that did strike me, there's no mention of, of God or Jesus or Jesus as, or Christ being the true source of healing and mercy and forgiveness. And, and I couldn't help but think, like, is this an area where, I mean, how, how, do you, how do you preach about the healing and mercy of God our Savior when the, wit, the witnesses or the, the people in the lives of, indigenous, of, of, our, of our indigenous brethren, the, some of the Christians in their lives who are supposed to be witnesses to God's love, drop the ball, I mean, to put it mildly? They certainly, they did, that's to put it mildly. 
do, do we then forfeit the the privilege no. or forfeit the, the the ability to talk about Christ and His mercy? Do no, we set that I, aside? I, I, I mean, I, how do we how do we thread that needle? Right. No, that's 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 it's an important needle to thread. And I think locally, of course, we do uh, thread the needle with with particular with communities that that remain uh, close to the church and for whom mm-hmm. who have not abandoned their their Catholic their Catholic roots and uh, that's seen and and uh, appreciated. But of course, many many now of First Nations people uh, have distanced themselves if if they had Christian roots or if they had Catholic roots. As you know, there's a considerable return to indigenous uh, spirituality, and to to speak using Christian language to them is, in a sense, not to be heard. Mm. And so, in in sort of those great general statements, that's addressed not to to faithful Catholics or people who are still kind of working within that framework, uh, which is which is dealt with always at an extremely local level, almost mm. al- almost the parochial level, and you know we have we have um, missions here where, of course, that's seemed to be a necessary part of of healing and reconciliation is one's one's relationship with one one's relationship with the Lord and how that plays into all healing and and so on. But sort of to all indigenous people, that language is not meaningful, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And in fact, is for some, it's almost offensive. I wish it weren't so, but right. I think that's the, the reality. Now, that being said, I did think it was incredibly instructive and revealing over the past few months when we saw the very tragic and appalling instances of, of churches being vandalized and set on, yes. set on fire. I mean, it was incredibly instructive, and I would argue encouraging. Many of the voices who were the most condemning of those yes, actions were, were, were indigenous. They were, certainly were, were first yes. nations. Not all of whom were practicing Christians, but many no. of whom do profess the Christian faith. Right. The, the general read I got of kind of the public mood is a lot of people weren't ready for that, and that came as that came as a surprise. And that occurred to me. You know what? There's something to this response. This could be. This could be constructive. This could be a breakthrough. You know, I think it was it it it, it was wonderful, and it uh, that they were, um, in many First Nations people were annoyed that non non Indigenous people were were doing these things to them. That they saw this as just as as, as another example of non Indigenous people trying to run the show and um, and doing things that they thought were in the interests of the indigenous people and they were mistaken in the, in that choice and that was that was very encouraging and you're right they weren't all people who were people of faith but who knew that that sort of reaction was not just counterproductive that it was um it was insulting to them to mm-hmm. people who had built that that church and mm-hmm. for whom for many that even if they didn't go for their grandmother and their aunties and so on it it was a significant place and for non-indigenous people to trespass on their land and, and burn something that belongs to them is wrong. And I think the voices were quite rightly, I mean, uh, uh, indigenous that opposed this. Mm-hmm. And you're right, it was encouraging. There is a lot of expectation and anticipation looking ahead to the, the delegation of indigenous yes. representatives that's going to have an audience with the Pope in December. I'm curious to hear your general thoughts on, on on your hopes and expectations for that event, and and how you're you're viewing it, and, and how you might be preparing for it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's going to be a, a, a signature event in the in the process of reconciliation. I think there are 34 members, I believe, of the of the of the delegation. There are a few a few bishops, you know, that the head of the conference and, and a few others but it's mostly going to be um, elders and knowledge keepers from the first nations i guess it's it's you know the bureau in ottawa, in ottawa that is organizing the how the selection of elders and so on should take place i just hope that whether whether it's the assembly of first nations or other other bodies that there will be some representation from British Columbia, I would hope, from even here from the Lower Mainland. But that's sort of out of my control. And a lot of it, of course, are it's the Indigenous peoples themselves through their various national organizations that will come up with those who should be in the small group that is most important. And then we anticipate that there'll be a wider 
group, a number of people who sort of accompany, but they won't be members of the official uh, delegation. It's not known whether, uh, to what degree the Pope will apologize to that group or whether he will announce, you know, they'll certainly express uh, remorse and, and, and regret and so on, but whether he will renounce that he will be coming to Canada to make an apology. So we don't, we don't know that. I mean, the Canadian bishops would, lo- would be very happy if the Pope were to come to Canada to do that, but we don't want to paint him into a corner where that the only way in which he could make the apology would be to, to be on Canadian soil, that he might deem that it would be before that group. So that's kind of an unknown. I would personally be very much in favor that the Holy Father would make a, a visit to Canada and probably on a on a reserve, you know, probably in the middle of the West somewhere, to make the requested apology. It would be a, a visit about an apology. It would not be a pastoral visit to Canada, mm-hmm. which is a whole other deal, you know, and would take long, too long in the preparation. But sure. we don't know. It, sure. Those are... <laughs> decisions the Holy Father makes. Well, we wish you and your brother bishops and, and everyone involved, including on the Indigenous side, all the best in the preparations for that event and, and pray that it may be, may be very fruitful for everyone. Yeah, I hope it's a healing, that it brings, that it's a step towards healing because it's been asked for, you know, by, by many Indigenous groups. I just want to squeeze in one or two more questions. I mean, particularly with the benefit of, of your background in Catholic education, you've also had the benefit of being on the front lines for, for Catholic education as a president uh, of, yes. of an, of an yeah. exemplary Catholic university uh, based out of Houston, University of St. Thomas. You were also at the Vatican leading their, their congregation for Catholic education. And just, I was number two. I didn't number lead two? it. There was, there was a prefect of- I was the secretary. Everyone knows it's the number two who does all the real work. But given the benefit of, of your years of experience in the field of education, what are your, kind of your, your general thoughts now in, in terms of collaboration between uh, the church and, and civil authorities as it relates to education or just the future of Catholic education in general? And particularly, I think some of the insights from, from the BC model sound very instructive in, in this regard. Yeah, uh I mean, a distinguish between tertiary, between, you know, college and, and university and uh, primary and secondary. At the tertiary level, I think that the, the best models for that are not in BC because BC provides no support mm. for denominational, including, of course, Catholic education. Uh, whereas in other provinces, there can be colleges established on a campus uh, St. Joseph's College in Edmonton, St. Paul's in Manitoba, uh, Thomas More in, in Saskatchewan, and St. Michael's in, in Toronto. Um, and I think that, the, that those areas of being able to be affiliated with a, a university and therefore enjoy some level of public support, if not full, in many of those cases, I think that's a good model. And it, it, but it only works insofar as the reception of the money is not at the at the price of giving up your right mm-hmm. to hire your faculty particularly it's not so much about admission of students but it's about the right to hire your own faculty according to your mission if that's guaranteed that's that's wonderful for primary and secondary schools for great you know element elementary and, and high schools i must say that um i didn't know much about the bc model before i came i knew the american model which is totally private schools and you have to pay everything it's it's totally on on with with really no breaks at all or the ontario model which i grew up in in which there was public funding and this the notion of independent schools receiving the same half of the operational grant that is given to the public school in the area because it varies a little bit between urban uh, and there's a direct transfer to the uh, to the board is in fact a happy solution mm. that it guarantees, and it, because it's usually accompanied by, well, it has to be accompanied by the liberty of the independent school, in this case, the Catholic school. We have five Catholic school boards in British Columbia to maintain their independence and to have to insist by contract on having teachers who are Catholic and are, or accept the, the mission of, of the school. I wish we had a little bit for capital expenses, even low interest loans and so on. But if it's to come at the cost of government 
control, then it's not worth it. I think what's most important is that uh, Catholics and other bodies um, continue to operate schools which are their own, following you know the the criteria for for curricula, but being able to teach it from their own perspective. I think that's really necessary, and that's a, that's a fight that would be worth engaging. Uh, if it were compromised, I lament the fact that there are no Catholic schools now in in the in the in, in Quebec except totally private or in the Maritimes. To me, it's not a it, it, it it's it's a decent and it allows us to provide education to a wide wide spectrum of 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 children from families of you know different economic means. So we have to be we have to ha we have to have our schools that are you know mission focused and teach a Catholic worldview across the curriculum and not, and not be isolated. The Italian example where they're allowed to teach a, a religion course to have somebody come in, it, it's okay, but to me that's very second best. Catholic school is much more than a, than a period every day or three times a week of religion. It's, it's, uh, it's a much broader environment, and it seems to me it's not the other leads to a bifurcation of, of knowledge that there's religion here and then there's the rest. And, I want to preserve, you know, schools with a real Catholic identity and a Catholic mission. And I understand, although one could argue that the government should do it, they don't see it that way to provide full funding. But that they provide some can be shown that this is a deal for you buddies. We're saving the public purse by doing this. And raising good citizens in the we process. We are. We do raise good citizens. And we have enough proof from Cardis to show that. Absolutely. You've been very gracious with your time. Just the final thing uh, to run by you, I, I couldn't help but notice. I hope you don't mind me saying, I, I think you turned 75 this year. I did turn 75 this year. That's a public fact. That means something when you're a bishop, right? Right. You, 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 you submit your resignation to the Holy Father by, by canon law, and he accepts it. And then he says, uh, would you be willing to stay on for three more years? And I said, yes, I would. Oh, that's wonderful news. I mean, the, the Pope can always do what he wants, you know, for that. But, but, it, but he did. He's, he, in the letter, it said, it said uh, three years and that you may tell people so that they know. So there's not a guessing game. You know, is he here today, but will he be gone tomorrow? Well, under normal circumstances, they know when it'll happen. So uh, wonderful news to celebrate, wonderful news to end our time together on. Archbishop Miller, thank you so much. Uh, we're very grateful for your time, your thoughts, and more importantly, uh, for your years of service to the church and to the flock. May God bless you in this next chapter that awaits. Uh, and thank you so much for being here today. Okay, God bless you, Patrick. Thanks a lot. It's been wonderful and, and even fun talking with you. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts and help us to reach more listeners by leaving us a rating or referring us to a friend. If you'd like to partner with us in the delivery of this podcast, head on over to our website at crownandcrozier.com and click the heart button in the top right-hand corner to learn more about making a one-time or monthly donation. We're sincerely grateful for you listening in, and we look forward to providing you with future episodes on church, state, and faithful citizenship. Until then, God bless.